so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. What were you like as a kid? Do you know? I mean, I think people people knew at a young age I was advanced. Oh, my word. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and arrogant? No, no. It's always said with a very humble tone. <laughs> <laughs> my word. Oh, okay. Here we go. Here we go. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me uh, this week with his infamous name change is Glenn Leatherwood. Glenn Leatherwood. (laughs) Yes. You might have to. Oh, that is that is just a funny. Tell our listeners why you're called Glenn. It's a funny little joke around SBC Twitter because somebody who is uh, criticizing our pro-life stand and their string of uh, accusatory tweets ended up referring to me as Glenn. And that's, you know, I joked on Twitter. I was like, well, my favorite version of the Chattanooga Choo Choo uh, was by the Glenn Miller Orchestra. And my favorite NASCAR race takes place in Watkins Glen, New York. And so... You also have a cousin named Glenn. I do have a cousin named Glenn. Uh, So maybe that was the source of the... (laughs) Well, either way, we love calling you Glenn now. So it's we've had some fun with it. And I'm sure that we'll get... And that's honestly, that's the only way to respond to just stuff like that that's not serious is to laugh about it. And that's, that's right. That's what we've been doing. And Joyful we, warriors. Well, and we love to laugh at you, Brent. <laughs> Thank <So>. you. <laughs> <laughs> Any way that we can do that, I'm sure we'll get lots of mileage out of it. <laughs> so let's go ahead and start talking about what has been happening lately. And we'll start off with what the ERLC has been featuring. This week in several of our pieces, we've been focusing on immigrants, refugees, the issue of immigration, because this is the time when in our legislative branch, they're going to be able to accomplish reforms related to immigration, if any. And so we wanted to highlight just some things for Christians to think about related to migration and why people migrate. And so first up, we have a piece by our D.C. colleague, Hannah Daniel, and it's titled Three Reasons Why People Migrate Despite Difficulties and Uncertainty. And then the subtitle, Title 42 and Our Complicated Immigration System. So she starts off saying this. So you might be wondering what Title 42 is. The Biden administration recently announced that they plan to terminate Title 42, a pandemic era rule that closed the United States borders to asylum seekers and others who migrate on May 23rd. So May 23rd is that deadline. So if he terminates Title 42, that means there will probably be more asylum seekers coming, more immigrants coming to our border. And so Hannah wanted to take a look at why do people migrate? Because it is, it's uncertain. It's very difficult. It's fraught with all kinds of tensions and 
truthfully, what these people go through, it, I just cannot even begin to imagine. And she names three things that I would encourage you to read about, corruption, violence, and poverty, which obviously none of us would want to have to live through. And so her explaining these things shows us as Christian why it matters, because these are real people that these things are happening to, people made in God's image. And while we need to have governance related to our borders, we need to have safety and security, we don't want illegal immigration to be taking place, we do want to first and foremost look at these individuals as people, and we want to figure out how we can help care for them, whether they are allowed to immigrate or not. Yeah, Title 42 has been in the news quite a bit recently. We've received a a number of questions about it, and so we wanted to kind of in that context help people understand some of these laws. Title 42 is actually not even an immigration law. It is a public health law that is being used in the context of immigration. And so President Biden, his administration, they're considering lifting it. And so we just wanted to help people understand if if that were to get lifted, if we were to see uh, a major surge of immigrants coming through, in particular, our southern border, wanted to to just kind of get beneath that and, and not necessarily talk about the politics of it, but help people understand why it is that communities, uh, people in, in various countries seek to come here and what some of those uh, motivations are. This is an incredibly helpful piece. Well, and in the same vein, Pastor Alan Cross who has been so kind to write for us in the past, has written another piece related to this, and it's titled, What I've Learned About the Church's Response to Migrants by Seeing Them Face-to-Face, Opportunities to Minister to Those at the U.S.-Mexico Border and Beyond. So he brings a personal touch to this because he's actually gone and he has encountered migrants and he has joined with ministries and churches who are serving them on both sides of the border. And he's heard stories. And so It became more than just a political issue to him. It became very real, and he had to ask himself, as a Christian, how should I think about this? And as I said earlier, regarding Hannah's piece, he said, first and foremost, I need to see them as people made in God's image. And he says this at the beginning of his article. With more than 26 million refugees and over 82 million forcibly displaced people in the world today, how Christians and churches see migrants and refugees is vitally important which just stuck out to me, 82 million forcibly displaced. That means they don't want to leave their home, but they're forced to. What we believe about God's mission to seek, save, and reconcile the world to himself through Jesus is revealed in part by how we see migrants and refugees when it comes to ministry, care, and concern for them as people made in God's image and loved by him. And he goes on to tell his story, explain what these ministries are doing, and calls Christians to see how God might have us be involved in these opportunities. And then toward the end of the article, he includes a link to the panel, the webinar that we were able to host, uh, where we talked to some individuals involved in this type of ministry and some experts. So I think that you will find this piece very helpful to you and informative uh, as you think about the immigration issue. Right. And so I, I think, you know, just underlying Alan's piece and and really our, our work in this area is, Whether Title 42 gets lifted or not, we're still going to have folks who are seeking to enter this country. We want them to come through legal channels. There will be people who choose to come in here in non-legal ways. Whatever route they choose, these are people made according to God's image. And we just want to serve them in that context just because the gospel compels us to, to do so. 
And uh, that's that's what I love about Alan's piece is is he's just helping folks understand the ways uh, that the church can uh, be helpful in this. And again, that's that's going to happen regardless of what other policy uh, decision is made in, in Washington or, or elsewhere. This is an area where the church can uniquely serve. And that's what this piece lets us know about. Well, and our final piece is also a way that we can pray and serve, and it relates as well to people who might be different than us. We encounter people from a different culture, though not from a different country, and the harsh ways that people respond to them. So this is by Jordan Wooten, and it's titled, How the Church Should Respond to the Rise of Anti-Semitism in America. So in 2021, This report by the Anti-Defamation League revealed that anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. reached an all-time high in 2021. And we know that the Jewish community are not the only people who are recipients of hate. As we've seen, and you'll talk about, people within the Black community have received, just been recipients of incredible violence, Asian-American community as well. And this just should not be happening. And it definitely should not be happening among Christians. We should be coming to the defense of everyone, uh, regardless of how different in whatever manner it might be. And so Jordan just gives us some ways that by Jesus, we're called to be peacemakers and how we can make peace practically. He has a couple of bullet points that I would encourage you to check out and to pray about. And he just calls us to a better way. Uh, and, And he quotes someone He says, after all, as as Drew Griffin has written, if one Jew was willing to give his life to save humanity, surely those of us who claim his name can stand up for the people to whom he came and through whom the gospel came to us. And I just thought that was really poignant. And it's just a tragic reminder of the sinfulness of human hearts and how Christians are called to stand against this violence. Yeah, we're we're called to obviously stand against this violence and uh, just stand against the the hate that underlies it. And I, I think Baptists, we uniquely, uh, we can uniquely be advocates uh, in this because we have a vision for religious liberty and and how individuals of different faiths and different faith traditions can live and coexist together. Obviously, w- we want to spread the gospel uh, as we do that, and create pathways for people to to know and and understand Jesus and be in relationship with Him, uh, but I, I really think that 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 understanding of of religious liberty, the principle behind it, can be so helpful if we would merely be advocates for everyone around us, and in doing so, just cut down on on some of those motivations, misunderstandings, and outright lies uh, that people have and believe about. Uh, those who are around them. Well, and regarding religious liberty, we talk about soul freedom, that from Scripture we understand you cannot coerce someone to put their faith in Christ, but God has to open their mind mm. and open their heart to mm. receive the gospel. And so that's why we um, advocate for religious liberty, and that's why we, as we proclaim the gospel, we trust that the Spirit will do that work. We don't coerce people by violence or any other means. Instead, we entrust them to the Spirit. And so... Uh, That was a good point, Brent or Glenn or whatever I should call you. As I say every week, these are just three of the articles that we have run this week. I would encourage you to check them out. I feel like it is so helpful to our understanding of what's going on in the world and how that relates to our individual lives as believers. 
But for now, Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section this week, Brent, what do you have for us? So, Lindsay, uh, it's obviously been an active week uh, in terms of the issue of abortion. And so that's actually where we're going to start with uh, an article that appeared first in the Washington Post. As a matter of fact, this week we've got several articles uh, from the Washington Post that uh, that we're going to examine together. So this Washington Post article talks about uh, how the regulation of abortion in state constitutions is the next front uh, for this issue. And it states, with the Supreme Court poised to overturn Roe v. Wade this summer, state legislatures have already introduced hundreds of bills to establish new abortion laws. But several states are going further, asking voters in coming months to uh, amend their state constitutions in hopes of permanently changing abortion rights. Upcoming constitutional ballot measures in Kansas and Kentucky, two that we are particularly watching, seek to eliminate state court challenges to laws restricting or banning abortion. Another in Vermont, which we have actually talked about previously on the podcast, the first of its kind would protect the right to an abortion. From the piece, it says, quote, the reason you turn to state constitutions is you want it to be more durable and harder to change, said David A. Bateman, an associate professor of government at Cornell University who studies state legislatures. What I loved about this piece is it kind of examines the history of how we got here in amending constitutions. And lo and behold, Lindsay, it examines what we did, the groundbreaking work we did right here in Tennessee. So let me highlight this. The subheading is following Tennessee's lead. So obviously you are proud. My 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 heart was just swelling uh, with pride. Until 2014, there was little movement to address abortion in state constitutions. However, that year, Tennessee voters passed an amendment giving the legislature the exclusive power to set abortion policies, a move prompted by a state Supreme Court ruling in 2000 that found the Tennessee Constitution's privacy provisions afforded women similar state-level protections as those in Roe v. Wade. Alabama, West Virginia, and Louisiana soon follow suit. So a couple things. A, it actually was more expansive than Roe v. Wade. That was why pro-life advocates like my former uh, bosses in the legislature, individuals that I, I worked with on the kind of party side of things, all of them were very much incensed that not only did it codify Roe, it went beyond Roe uh, with this very poor uh, state Supreme Court ruling. And so it took years. So that that happened in 2000. It took 14 years of very hard work Uh, to get to the point where we could pass uh, an amendment. And I was personally involved in that. Uh, At that point, I was uh, the executive director of the Tennessee Republican Party, and uh, we were doing all that we could to inform voters about it. But I'll tell you what, six weeks out, the polling on that was not looking great. And you want to know who made the difference? Lindsay, can you guess who made the difference? Churches, Lindsay. (laughs) (laughs) Churches made the difference because I was talking with a few colleagues and particularly a few colleagues at the ERLC and uh, with the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board and was just trying to understand what are ways we could help to make sure pastors know that this somewhat, you know, complicated ballot initiative, how they could understand that this is actually the moment where you want to be speaking about life to help people in the pews understand this is your moment to act 
at the ballot box to save lives. And after churches, a good many of them, Southern Baptist churches, got engaged, we ended up passing that amendment to the Constitution. It was just, it was an incredible moment. There were so many people, dedicated leaders, dedicated pro-life activists, committed Christians that were so engaged in that effort. It was, honestly, it was one of the proudest moments of my career, of any campaign that I've, I've been involved with. And I'm glad that the Washington Post, as they were researching this, they basically acknowledged Tennessee was the forerunner in this uh, because it even points out several other states immediately said, hey, they did that in Tennessee. We can do that here, including the state of Louisiana, which has been the the source of some confusion recently uh, as it relates to, uh, you know, especially in the last week, individuals somehow thinking that it does not already or will not, should Roe be overturned, uh, ban abortion. Louisiana has actually made that pretty clear. If Roe goes, abortion will be banned in the state of Louisiana, uh, which we are grateful for. What Where the conversation has turned recently, though, is that some more extreme voices want to prosecute mothers and, and criminalize uh, these vulnerable mothers. And, and that's that's just not where the pro-life movement has ever been. That's not where the broader conservative movement uh, really has ever been. And it's certainly not where the Southern Baptist Convention has ever been, which we made abundantly clear last year. Uh, we instead, we know that these women, they have been preyed upon by Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry. Why? Because they have turned abortion, a heinous act, into a money-making act. And so the one thing that they want in this moment, as we are very likely on the cusp of Roe versus Wade getting struck down or or at least neutered to be irrelevant uh, by the Supreme Court, the one thing they want is for Christians, for pro-life uh, activists, for conservatives to say, yeah, we need to go after the mothers. That gives them the ammunition they need to say, see, these Christians, these pro-lifers, they don't care about you. They actually want to throw you behind bars. That is just not the direction that we need to go. Instead, we need, especially Christians, let's go back to Scripture and let's think through how did Jesus serve uh, women who were in crisis? That's the posture we need to take here. How do we come around these mothers, these very anxious fathers, these families in crisis? What can we do to actually say, you're supported and let's save that baby's life and know that this will be a part of your flourishing because that's that's the truth. And they get lied to by the abortion industry. And, and so that's the direction we need to go. And I am so thankful that for years, our convention of churches has been abundantly clear on this. We want to save lives. We want to serve mothers. And we want to go after those abortion doctors. We want to go after those abortion clinics and penalize them for the heinous activity uh, that occurs. And so that's kind of it in a summary. But this this piece does a does a, a very good job of just laying out some of the parameters of what is going to, to be our future. It's state-level conversations. It, it's, it's no longer going to be quite as focused on Washington, although policymakers at the federal level are still going to have a role to play for sure, uh, because we want to eventually if we can't get it in this uh, Supreme Court opinion, uh, we want to push for a national right to life because it's there in the Constitution. It absolutely is. And so 
it is self-evident that there is a right to life. And that's where we're going. Uh, but right now, let's end abortion. Let's save lives. Let's serve mothers. And let's go after these abortionists. That's where we are. Well, and I'm thankful that we have people like you and others to help explain this because it can get complicated when you talk about turning to the states and the different laws and the processes and all of that. And you mentioning the uh, controversy regarding prosecuting women, punishing them for having abortions and and that not being the stance that the SBC has historically taken or that pro-life organizations have taken. There was a great article that former president of the ERLC, Dr. Richard Land, wrote for the Land Center out of Southwestern. And it was regarding the pro-life movement in the Southern Baptist Convention, of which Dr. Land has been an integral part of. And so he does not cut any corners in sharing this. So he talks about where Southern Baptists have landed, and he talks about that issue, how it is has not been the practice of those in the pro-life movement to want to punish mothers. Now, it's important to note that nobody is saying people are not culpable for their sin. It doesn't excuse mothers who have had abortion for calling that a sin and needing to confess that and receive the Lord's forgiveness. But punishing them, by and large, is not the way to do that. So I'm thankful for these steps that are being taken, incremental steps. You know, that's been a debate too. Steps that are being taken to protect babies and to protect moms. And I I pray that one giant leap for mankind is taken, (laughs) to quote Neil Armstrong, uh, here in a few weeks when we pray Roe is overturned. Yeah, absolutely. And but I mean, as this as this piece lays out, right, our our work is not done. The the striking down of Roe and the return of this issue to the states, it simply marks a new chapter. Uh, we we certainly should rejoice that after Roe is struck down and this Mississippi law is upheld and and others uh, like it, we should rejoice that we will go to bed one day where lives are threatened. And we will wake up the next day and more lives will be protected. More lives will be saved. That is truly something to be thankful for and appreciate. At the same time, we got to roll up our sleeves because just as it lays out here, Vermont, California, Maryland, they are looking at some really permissive, heinous abortion uh, laws and We've got to be just as active at the local level as we have been at the national level. And the good news is, I know the pro-life movement is ready for that. I, I was just in D.C. this week talking with a number of folks in, uh, that are integral uh, in the pro-life movement. And the will to do that is there. Uh, if anything, this decision in the Dobbs case is just going to put more wind in the sails of the pro-life movement. And I'm, I'm just so thankful for that. So a natural kind of response to this is like, okay, Brent, you, you mentioned like, how do we support these mothers? Uh, what's, you know, what's the thing we can do? Well, I'll tell you one thing that can be done. And one thing that was done in a major way, all we need to do is look towards our, our Baptist brothers and sisters down in Texas. Uh, and that is where the Southern Baptists of Texas Convention this week announced a huge, incredible partnership uh, with our own Psalm 139 uh, project here at the RLC. The Psalm 139 project, just as a reminder for our audience, it places ultrasound machines in pro-life clinics across the country. And so this comes to us uh, from Baptist Press, and it states, 
uh, the SBTC presented a gift of $228,000 to the SBC's ethics entity Tuesday for the placement of six ultrasound machines at pregnancy resource centers in the state. The SBTC grant was made to the Psalm 139 Project and Ministry of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and the donation will cover the placement of six machines as well as staff training. Locations for three of the machines already have been selected, according to the RLC, including the three pregnancy resource centers already chosen in Texas. The RLC has now placed or committed to centers to place 36 ultrasound machines towards its goal of 50 placements between December 2020 in January of 2023, our own Rachel Wiles, who is our director of the, the Psalm 139 project for us, she said this, the ERLC continually seeks to save lives and serve mothers, especially in partnership with pro-life clinics. Since the passing of SB8, the law, the Psalm 139 project has been contacted by several Texas pregnancy centers requesting updated ultrasound machines. Improved technology and newer machines provides much earlier heartbeat detection and allows a woman to see the growing life inside of her. And look, that's just one part. These pro-life clinics, they are so awesome. My favorite part of every visit is actually not seeing the machine. Though I mean, I'm thankful for that. We, we actually pray over the staff and, and all the good work that will uh, be accomplished through that technology. But it's to go see their storage room that has diapers and toys and clothing for honestly, all ages. And that is a tangible way that supporters of these clinics, uh, that the clinic staff can come around and wrap around these mothers and say, hey, I know you're worried about how you'll ever do all this raising this child. We've got you. We're going to give you these things and we're going to help you uh, make sure you have the resources you need to get off to a great start. I love those moments. And these rooms are Pack, you know, ceiling to the ceilings uh, with all these all these great materials. So that's uh, that's one thing I love. That is amazing. And the pregnancy resource center workers are just heroes, hands down. And those who volunteer and give and fill those rooms. But big congrats to our life team, Elizabeth Graham, Rachel Wiles, and all the girls who work on that team to help make this happen. And praise the Lord for Him making it happen that we could have place potentially life-saving ultrasound machines in uh, these pregnancy resource centers is amazing. Absolutely is. Okay, let's pause here real quick, uh, parents, because the next two stories that we're covering are a little uh, harsh. If, if you have any young ears around, you might want to excuse them from the room if you're listening on a speaker or in your drive. Okay, so next we're moving into talking about Two shootings that occurred, two heinous, reprehensible, vile shootings, tragic murders that took place uh, at a grocery store in Buffalo and at a church in California. This first story comes to us from NPR. In a brief hearing at Erie County Courthouse on Thursday morning, prosecutors received more time to put together their case against Peyton Gendron, who's accused of killing 10 people in a racist attack on a Buffalo, New York grocery store. Quote, emotions are high. I understand the rawness of this matter. However, I do not operate in a court of public opinion, the prosecutor said. I operate in a court of law, and this defendant is innocent until proven guilty. Flynn added that more charges might be filed after a grand jury convened and investigated the shooting. There's a 45-day window for that to occur, and the clock starts ticking today. 
Officials have said that they are investigating the mass shooting as a racially motivated hate crime and are also considering a terrorism charge. You can read about the very heartbreaking details uh, of what went on uh, with this elsewhere. So we don't necessarily need to, to cover it now. As a matter of fact, you, you likely have already read about it. But just as we were talking earlier, the motivations behind this are just wicked. Uh, this was an evil display of racism that underlied what this what this individual did. And so we pray that justice will be done. And we pray that the Lord, uh, who is always near to the brokenhearted, will, will comfort these families in Buffalo, the community uh, of Buffalo, uh, because it certainly has uh, shaken that city to its core. Yeah, it is. It's just heinous. And to not be okay with calling it what it does appear to be, just a racist attack, and to call that out a sin and is silly that it's, well, dumb that it's being debated on Twitter among Christians, really. There's just this whole brouhaha, and it it's just utterly ridiculous. So we, I feel for the family members and for friends and, and those who are just, their worlds have been turned upside down, and their hearts are struck with fear and grief because of what they've experienced the wickedness of this man's actions and and just to scuffle about calling it anything other than racist and wrong and sinful is just ridiculous. So pray the Lord brings beauty from the ashes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of, of beauty, moving to this next event that happened in California, uh, there was a beauty in the sacrifice of one of the victims. Uh, so this comes to us from NBC News, and it talks about a doctor who was hailed as a hero in the midst of this. Dr. John Ching, who was killed Sunday in a shooting at a Taiwanese church in Southern California that also left five wounded, is being remembered as a caring, kind, and humble member of the community. Ching was a 52-year-old sports medicine physician and father of two. He was attending a lunch banquet at the Irvine Taiwanese Presbyterian Church in Laguna Woods, about 45 miles south of Los Angeles, with his mother when the shooting began. He tackled the shooter in an attempt to stop him and sustain multiple wounds, according to the Orange County Sheriff's Office. Ching was pronounced dead at the scene. During a news conference Monday, Sheriff Don Barnes called Ching a hero for trying to protect others at the church. Without the actions of Dr. Ching, it is no doubt there would be numerous additional victims in this crime, said the sheriff. Uh, Barnes, the sheriff on Monday, called the shooting a politically motivated hate incident and said Chu, the shooter, a U.S. citizen, was upset about political tensions between China and Taiwan. Uh, just another horrifying situation. Whether you're in a grocery store or you're at a, at a lunch honoring a, an outgoing pastor, as was the case here, you just don't think that these kinds of things will ever happen. And unfortunately, these happened in very close uh, time-wise to, to each other last week. And it is, I don't know, these events happen and you are just every time left without the proper words to express the outrage and the grief that are needed. Yeah, it, it just is, uh, again, an indictment on the state of our hearts that we hate someone so much that we, for whatever reason, that we'd be willing to 
to kill them. And, you know, James 4 addresses this somewhat. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so that murderous intent rises up on a self-bent, hell-bent heart. And once again, it shows us that our only hope is Christ. And that really only the Christian worldview from the Bible makes sense of what the stuff that we see all around us. And only the answer of Christ uh, as our sacrifice and our Savior gives us a solution, a surefire solution to the wickedness that's in our heart. And so these incidences just continue to remind us of this and cause our hearts to sigh deeply. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Sigh and grieve, lament lament and and grieve with the people in Buffalo and the people in this Irvine uh, church and, and just say, we must be better. We must pay attention to those around us and intervene sooner. Well, if we can, you don't always know. No, no, but I mean, I do think there's some biblical wisdom here, right? If, If we are bearing one another's burdens and we are truly loving our neighbor, we will just by definition, we will be involved more in their lives and it's not going to prevent every, I mean, look, we're in a fallen world where, you know, the enemy is, is reigns. And so, but if we are loving our neighbor, if we are bearing one another's burdens, I am hopeful that we will be more engaged in the lives of those around us to help maybe turn them from being under the sway of these sorts of dehumanizing lies out there or feeling that uh, because of a international crisis that's going on between two other countries, that, that somehow the only response to that is to take it out on a church that is gathering. I, that That's that's more, I think, what, what I'm saying. Like, well, we've got it. It's like Rosaria Butterfield says in her books and the gospel comes with the house key you have to be it's something to the effect that to be able to minister to people you have to be there yeah we live such busy lives we've got to be make a margin in our lives to be able to to know them to love them and to continually be able to hold out the powerful heart-changing transformative gospel to them okay Lindsay, our our final story comes to us from the physical newspaper. Have you even seen one of these recently? A physical newspaper? Do you, do you even know what this is? I do know what that is. I, uh, I'm i not sure when the last time was that I saw one yeah, of those. Exactly. I, I, pref- I like to read the comic section. It's my favorite part. Of course. Well, you know what? The last time I saw one of those was probably uh, Thanksgiving for all the ads. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, I'm I'm a big fan of the physical newspaper. I think it just it just causes you to slow down and and take it in much more so than reading online. So this is also coming to us from the Washington Post and very relevant for us. And look, we're having a lot of debates out there around the country in the American church context. Some of them are important, uh, no doubt about it. What are Christian brothers and sisters in China are facing? Just a completely different level. I mean, there are a number of conversations and dialogues and even debates going on in the American context of the church, and and some of them very important. What is happening in China 
is just a, a whole nother level of, frankly, persecution. And, and that's especially happening with the churches in Hong Kong, which, you know, I think Christians by and large, Southern Baptists in particular, uh, because of the great work of our, our International Mission Board, pretty familiar with the heavy hand of the government against the Chinese Communist government, against churches and mainland China. What they're doing in Hong Kong, uh, which has, you know, historically been independent from mainland China, what they're doing there is unfortunately bringing the same heavy hand that they've used against churches in mainland to, to Hong Kong. And so this story, it says uh, from the Washington Post, Hong Kong churches no longer off limits as Beijing tightens reins against dissent. So I'm going to read pretty extensively from this because I, I think it, it really helps to, to talk about it. It starts with a pastor uh, who is leading a service. In a, in a gray sweater and a purple stole, Father Franco Mella held mass as he had every Sunday for the past seven years to pray for the activists and protesters arrested in the city's widening crackdown on dissent. Sing hallelujah to the Lord, the, the group sang, nearly drowned out by the traffic. Moments later, a woman approached the group, took video, and recorded the identity numbers of several participants before leaving in a police car. Quote, we are mentally prepared to be arrested someday, said Winnie Wong, one of the organizers. Hong Kong's wide-ranging crackdown on all forms of social protest is now being felt by its churches, a backbone of the city's once vibrant activism, and its religious spaces are now being brought under state control, much the way they are in the rest of China. Last Wednesday, the Hong Kong National Security Police arrested 90-year-old Cardinal Joseph Zinn, the most outspoken senior Roman Catholic cleric in Hong Kong and the city's former bishop for involvement in a humanitarian relief fund that supported jailed activists. The Hong Kong government has said the arrests have absolutely nothing to do with religion and are just a matter of laws being violated. That's the way these regimes always are. It's always such a convenient, oh no, this actually isn't about religion. It's about the laws that we have, the, the laws that virtually no one knows about or is aware of. Uh, or make sense in any sort of understanding of, of human dignity. Continuing, according to 18 pastors and religious experts interviewed by the Washington Post, churches have been pushed into censoring themselves and avoiding appointing pastors deemed to have political views. And at least one major church is restructuring itself in case the government freezes its assets. In the closing, it says this, Hong Kong's clergy members are now rethinking ways of carrying out their preaching to balance between speaking out on social justice issues and the safety of their churches and families. Pastor Shu King Kong, who has been running sermons with 10 people at a time since January last year, said, quote, mosquito-sized churches, independent from registered church or charity organizations, and the new strictures of the state will be the norm in the future. Listen to his words here. Quote, to continue to speak the truth, and call out for social justice to tell people what the Bible teaches and how the Christ taught us shall be the greatest challenge we endeavor in this era. I don't know about you, Lindsay, but I, my heart is just broken for these people and their faithfulness in the midst of an increasingly oppressive and ominous government that does not, it is no respecter of religious freedom. It's courage, like, is rarely seen, honestly. You know, I had the 
privilege of going to Southeast Asia one time. And yeah, it just personalizes what these believers are going through. And it reminds me of, have you read The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin, a missionary who, well, he he and his wife lost their one of their sons. And he started thinking about suffering. And then he started visiting different groups of believers in different countries who face such persecution and just discovered, I think the area of China was one of them, but he just discovered that they expect that. When they become believers, they expect it. And they were just asking Americans to pray for them with their freedom, to use their freedom to pray for them. But also, it just recounted stories of the faith of these people and how the Lord stood beside them. And so I would encourage you to read it. If The, the title's weird, but it's a solid book, The Insanity of God. And he had a follow-up of that too. But those stories, as well as like the Voice of the Martyrs book, will just strengthen you in your faith and really convict you for our, our complaining, our quote-unquote first world problems. We do live in the first world and we do have problems but nothing compared to what these believers are walking through. And I want to take a moment here. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi penned uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post about this uh, Cardinal Joseph Zinn, who was arrested along with several colleagues. Look, our differences with Speaker Pelosi, they are well-known and well-covered. We have a different approach on so many issues out there, so many issues that are very important to us as Southern Baptists, uh, as evangelical Christians, but bracket that for a minute. Uh, she is talking about this heinous arrest of this uh, Catholic cardinal. Uh, she says this, Zen and three of his colleagues have been released on bail, but the charges remain in force with each facing the prospect of life in prison. We must all condemn their arrests, which are an affront to religious freedom, political freedoms, and human rights. As I have said before, if we do not speak out on human rights in China because of commercial interests, we lose all moral authority to speak out on human rights anywhere in the world. And uh, look, I know there are going to be some people who hear that and they're going to say, oh, well, what about this? Or what about that, Speaker Pelosi? Okay, I, I get that. And it's th that sort of critique. It's got merit. Just stop and appreciate here what the speaker is saying. And that let's let's just affirm that this is a violation of basic human rights. This is a violation of religious freedom. The Chinese Communist Party is an oppressive regime and it has to be confronted. And as we have contended now for several years, it has to be confronted morally. And what Speaker Pelosi is saying here is doing that. And we need more U.S. leaders doing that. They need to be countered morally because the way that they are conducting these crackdowns in Hong Kong, the way that they are treating their citizens and limiting the free speech and free expression, the heinous treatment of the Uyghur people in the Xinjiang province, all of this shows that they are a morally bankrupt regime. And they have got to be countered and called out uh, for their misdeeds. And they should not be a part of the broader international community until they turn from their evil and wicked ways. And so I, I'm, I'm thankful for these pieces reporting. I'm thankful that Speaker Pelosi took time to pen this piece because it's absolutely right. China has got to be countered. 
you're right, Brent. There's really nothing that I can add to that. Anything, uh, anything that I add just seems like going off a cliff because you did such a great job. Uh, I'm thankful that the plight of the Uyghurs and China's treatment of them has come to light and that our colleagues like Chelsea Soblick have done such amazing work and her husband. And uh, for pastors like Griffin Gulledge, who used his social media in a constructive way to shine a light on this horrible crisis. And yeah, I pray that the Lord just shuts down the corrupt government of China because it's hard to imagine that that, that that happened, that we live in the same world and that actually is allowed to happen. And that's how citizens live. Okay. Well, Lindsay, we've only done a, a couple of stories, but we covered a lot of ground. Last seven days since we were together has, has been uh, a lot of big events going on. And so uh, that is your look at This Week in Culture. And now it's time for the lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. Brent, what do you want to bring to the table today? Well, Lindsay, in addition to working with you and, and meeting your arbitrary deadlines uh, for Light Magazine, uh, the other reason that I'm in such a good mood today is because the rodeo is back. The Franklin Rodeo right here in Middle Tennessee is back. And my family and I, we are heading there this weekend. I'm so excited. We haven't been able to, to get to a rodeo. We went to one since we went, uh, since we came back from Wyoming last summer. I can't, where, I can't remember where it was, but we've only had one like in the last, you know, 10 months. That's too few, way too few. We need more rodeos. And so for our family, we're heading there and we are excited because I think rodeos are fantastic family fun. I have been to the rodeo one time here in Franklin, and that's probably one time enough. No. It was so boring. How is it boring? <laughs> it just was boring. No. It was so boring. Watching people get bucked around on a okay, horse. But, the okay, best but bull part, riding is not the only part of the, the rodeo. Well, it was like a horse, too. The best part of the rodeo were the little monkeys on the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> that was legit. One of the best parts. And when the kids went out there to run around and I don't remember what they had them do, but yeah. that was funny too. Yeah. But of the things I saw, that was enough for me. It just doesn't appeal to me. What out? What at a rodeo do you enjoy? I Everything. Everything from trying to win the free truck giveaway to... <laughs> just watching the uh, the rodeo clown, the great <laughs> skills of the the great equestrian skills of the horsemen, and obviously the bull ride. I mean, no, the whole the whole experience is awesome. Makes me want to make honestly. It makes me want to go back to Wyoming right now. Well, I'm sure. I mean, Wyoming, I'm sure is beautiful. I've never been there, but I don't even know if I'll take my kids to the rodeo. We'll see what their interests are. It's just, uh, yeah. Mm-mm. No, not for me. So you won't see me at the rodeo, but I'm glad you'll be having fun. Something else you won't see me doing is what's my lunchroom, Brent, and that is from the New York Times. Scientists uncover a shady web of online spider sales. More than 1,200 species of arachnids are part of a largely unregulated global marketplace, according to a new study. And so this article talks about the fact that you can get tiny little spiderlings mailed to you in an envelope, which is just utterly disgusting. And one person says, well, you don't have to walk them and they don't bark. 
So that is definitely not reason enough for me to join the spider dark web. I don't understand how people get into these businesses. There's also like a snake, either snake business for selling different kind of breeding and selling different kind of snakes. It just, it's the stuff of nightmares and totally creeps me out. But the other thing that I wanted to mention on this this here podcast in this here lunchroom is that my husband and I, I know we're weeks and weeks behind, but we finally watched The Batman. And, you know, I was not looking forward to Christian Bale not being Batman or the Christopher Nolan series, the trilogy, but it was an interesting story. It was definitely dark, reminded me kind of the Joker feel to it, which is also dark. So you just have to be careful if you're, just have to figure out if it's something that you would be able to watch. But it was interesting. It was intriguing. Uh, Robert Patton, is that his name, was not impressive to me as a Batman at all. He was like emo Batman, dark and brooding, but interesting nonetheless. It was entertaining. Did you see it? I or did. Or do you watch those? Yeah, I, I did. So, uh, yeah, so let's go in reverse order. Somebody was joking on social media that the Batman films over the years are getting so dark, uh, especially with this last one. I mean, it's just, the whole movie is just kind of like brooding. <laughs> it joked that the the next Batman is just going to be, <laughs> it's just going to be three hours of a completely dark, dark screen. screen. Yeah, <laughs> You won't be able to see anything. You won't be able to feel anything. It'll just be completely black because that is the trajectory uh, the Batman movies are, are on. And then on your your spider thing, that actually calls to mind a movie from the 90s, Arachnophobia, uh, where the only way they defeated uh, this colon, colony of spiders that, that were taking over a town was just lighting everything on fire. Oh and Lord. that's what hearing you talk about uh, mail order spiders <laughs> uh, makes me want to do. Yeah, Just I, light it all on fire. I saw an Instagram post from someone I used to go to church with that... He, his wife called him in the bathroom to step on a spider and it was an ugly looking spider. And when he did, like a hundred baby spiders. Oh, oh golly, that's nightmarish. <laughs> I know, makes my skin crawl. I would scream like a little girl. <laughs> oh, it's disgusting. Anyway, that's enough to make your skin crawl for the rest of the day, isn't it? Well, you know, Glenn, I have been glad to be back on the podcast with you after a week away, which we're away for a week every week, but, <laughs> and you being in DC, but it was good to sit down and do this episode of the ERLC podcast with you once again. Same. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> Likewise. Back at you, kid. <laughs> Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolet. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.